Our first message this afternoon is from Mr. Ron Wilhoyt. His message is entitled, Because He Delights in Mercy. Ron. Good afternoon, everyone. With that title, I sure praise and thank him that he does delight in mercy. Last Sabbath, I put uh, two of my favorite ladies on the prayer list, and that, of course, was Wandima and her sister, Delois. Now, some of you don't know these two sisters, but those of you that do know what incredibly special ladies that they are, and they have become such a blessing in my life after meeting them at the feast a few years ago. And the thing is, is that when you meet someone special at the feast, what happens all too often is you see them once a year. Now, I know it can be for eight days, but it's just not the same. So me and my wife went to see them. It's been several weeks now to see them in Paris, Arkansas, and it's just really not that far and I would encourage anyone, as you meet people, and you have friends and you have family, you have what you call dear loved ones, if it's within your means and it's possible, get up and visit them. Go see them. Because if you haven't noticed, it's 2013. And it just seems as though it was about a month ago that I was passing out a few daily Bibles that we were going to start beginning for the year 2012. And now it's 2013. Now there's a, an old lyric to an old song, I would say, maybe circa 1982. It said, time passes on time. It's kind of simple, simplistic. But yet, it's somewhat profound, don't you agree? Time passes on time. But I have to admit to you that it, seeing the calendar roll to 2013, you know, I thought that I had a little bit more time. Because this is that year for me, and it's that year for my wife, too, that now our oldest one will no longer have the, the word teen in the end of his age. Because it's going to be 20. And then there's a couple running around in this building today that will graduate high school this year in 2013. But one thing about Wanda and Wandima and Delois, after putting them on the prayer request, is that what really is that bolstering, strengthening part of, of petitioning God to do what we kind of said in that first hymn, is that we have to pray deeper. <laughs> We've got to pray deeper, is to receive a message from her that she was feeling so much better and that her sister had actually had one of the best night's sleep that she had had from these prayers. And to walk in today and to see the ladies praying, I would encourage each of us to make this year especially this time as we advance and approach to Passover time, would you join me in praying deeper one for another? When we realize how many people are sick right now with something that is just not easy to shake right now, we're going to have to pray with greater boldness. 
in his strength and within his power to break this sickness from us because it's to our Father that we pray like Curtis brought out last week. The Father of compassion, we have to appeal bolder and better and more effective unto him because we're told he is our Father who want, he forgives us for all of our sins and he heals us of all of our diseases. And so we need to really focus deeper. I'm just so glad, we, Ron, you, you, I'm so glad you sang that first hymn because it put it in perspective of what has to happen. We have to pray deeper and it has to be more sincere and more intimate. Well, the one thing I've, I've enjoyed about the Daily Bible for so many years now, guilty that it took a long time to see its value, but now seeing it's just it's part of my life now. What's interesting is that when you come to December 31st and you, you close that book, you close Revelation, you know tomorrow you've got to come back and open it from the other way. And there's something that if I've kind of brought from Revelation into the reading of, of Genesis. As you make that, that return trek, you know, as you finish and then you go to the beginning, there's something that really has been upon my mind on these past few days. And there it is. It says, what will be was intended from the beginning. What will be was intended from the beginning. And it's Revelation 21, verse 3. As you look at Revelation 21, verse 3, this is from the great voice that John writes and says, And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. But notice this. And he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. Really, through some kind of joking around this week at work, because even though it was the end of year holiday time, people's minds were still kind of on that. A few extra days off work, so there's maybe a little bit of frivolity, possibly, going on, and, and there was some questioning going on about, well, really, what is the meaning of life? And there were some really nonsensical answers coming about what the meaning of life is. But I think this is it. Revelation 21, verse 3. The meaning of, of life is to be His people. For Him to be with us. For Him to dwell with us. And to be our God. I don't think I'm stretching to conclude that this is what the eternal has desired from the very beginning. That this desire, this wanting to dwell with his creation. Because you have to agree that it was intentional. It was intentional on his part when he formed man, when he formed Adam of the dust of the ground. He formed him and then formed the nostrils, yeah? that he then breathed into 
intentional. But well before that, you have the intent of his design when he said, let there be lights in the firmament to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and let them be for seasons. Let these be for seasons and we understand the incredible significance of that design element in the revelation of his appointed times and that being the feasts of the Almighty. I was speaking a little bit about some things with my wife last night and she reciprocated and spoke a few things to me. It was nice. After 23 years, just recently, 23 years of marriage. Thank you, dear. I love you very much. Lawrence Gregory, dear pastor, married us 23 years ago last December 23rd. Many of you were there. Remember how cold. <laughs> Amen. It was cold, but we were there and 23 years later. But in speaking with my wife last night and talking with her a little bit about some of these thoughts that have been carried from Revelation back to reading Genesis again, it says this original intent, this original intent of our Creator, how quickly it met a snag. And snag is not meant to downplay it because it was a major snag because of all of the intention in forming all of the intention of designing everything the way that he did, the intentionalness of him in this, it met the snag when, when the question arose, when he had to question, who told you, who told you that you were without raiment? Okay? And we find that in Genesis 3, in verse 7. Now, I want you to remember what was spoken last Sabbath in a combination message, okay, that I've called it now, is that Curtis talked about the Father of Compassion. The Father of Compassion. And what Steve brought out in his sermon, Steve Andrews brought out that his ways are not our ways, okay? As we read Genesis 3 and verse 7, And the eyes of them were, were both opened, and they knew that they were, I'm going to say without raiment. They knew that they were unclothed. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. It's fascinating that the awareness of that moment and then to think what have we got available and it was the sowing of fig leaves to make themselves an apron and thinking about the father of compassion and thinking about his incredible ways I would say that they are the ways of the Father of Compassion, the ways of compassion. I want you to think about that as you look at the next verse in Genesis 3, verse 21, about what God did. Realizing what happened, which prompted him to ask, who told you 
and realizing what was going to have to happen, notice what the Father of compassion, whose ways are not our ways. And I want you to see this because it's the wonderfulness of our Creator. When they sewed themselves aprons of fig leaves, what did he do? And to Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins. He made coats of skins. And what? And he clothed, clothed them. To be standing there after it was, after hiding in the awareness of that condition, to be hiding from him, to be standing before him in homemade aprons of fig leaves, to then have your creator, your father who wants just to dwell with you, for you to be his people and for him to be your God, what does he do? He made coats of skins and then he clothed them. It's incredible to me, from homemade sewing of fig leaves to the God-made coats of skins. And then he clothed them. Because remember, Revelation, he will dwell, right? You'll take this next year with that closing part of Revelation of what his desire and what will happen. He will dwell. And he wants us to be his people because he wants to be our father. And if we know that, won't that make us pray deeper in petitioning him who forgives us for all of our sins and heals us of all of our diseases. From sown fig leaves to coats of skin. It's from own sown. Wasn't it that? It was own sown to God made, almighty made raiment. The father of compassion and his ways are not our ways. And we praise him for that. Even though his ways are not our ways, I thank God for the light that was given to David when he wrote in Psalm 103 where he says that he made known his ways, right, unto Moses, which we've been over and over again. But it's so profound to know that in that psalm of the adoration of blessings that we get from our Father, he says that he made known his ways unto Moses. But then he finishes that verse by saying that he made his acts known unto the children of Israel. He made known his ways unto Moses, his acts unto the children of Israel. And even though he did, when it was time for Moses to send the twelve to examine the promised land, when he selected the twelve, I want you to see the land that he swore to give them. Even though it was made known to them, the ways of the Almighty, and even though it was made known to them, his acts unto Israel... What happened when the people came back from spying out the land? If you look at Numbers 14, but here's what happened in one verse. 
and it's actually back in Numbers 13, so let me read it for you. I know that Caleb was an encouragement. The fact that his ways had been made known unto Moses and the fact that his acts were revealed to Israel, Caleb was encouraged, and he says, let's go do it. But notice what the majority report. The majority report said this in a simple sentence. We be not able to go up against the people for they're stronger than we are. And see, it didn't just stop right then, right? All of the deliverance, everything that had happened in the revelation of the mighty hand, the delivering arm of God out of Egypt, to have 12 go over and then come back and the majority report they're stronger than we are. But see, it got a little more violent where we pick it up in Numbers 14. Verse 4. And they said one to another, let us make a captain. And let us what? Let's return to Egypt. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter, God, what you've done to get us at this point. I just got back from there. I saw them. They're stronger than we are. We need a leader now to return us back to where we came from. It continues in verse 5. It says, When Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. But notice verse 6. It says, And Joshua. Joshua. the son of Nun and Caleb, rent their clothes. Notice what they said in verse 7, Numbers 14. And they spake unto all the company of the children of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to search it is an exceeding good land. That's what God said all along, right? But notice verse 8, If the Lord delight in us, if the Lord delight in us, then He will bring us into this land and give it to us, the land which flows with milk and honey. So still, even after that, even after this wonderful idea to we've got to get a leader to return us back to Egypt, there's Caleb and there's Joshua with this word saying, just a second, just a second. But now... As it continues in verse 9, Only rebel not you against the Lord, neither fear you the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their defense is departed from them. Notice here, And the Lord is with us. Fear them not. What good did that do? It's already decided we need a leader to take us back to Egypt. Caleb's incredible words of encouragement that could have been there for something only made them want to stone them. From selecting a leader to take us back to Egypt, if I don't want to hear it, I'm going to stone you. An incredible story. They didn't return to Egypt, as we know. But it was what Bollinger calls the penal wanderings which it was revealed to Moses that says that he's our habitation. He's our habitation from generation 
to generation. And then we have, of course, the period of the judges. And thank God for Samuel. And then thank God for David. But as it progressed, of course, we understand that it was Solomon who was privileged to be the one to build the temple for God. It's an incredible prayer of dedication that he offers. But I want you to see something in 1 Kings verse 8. 1 Kings verse 8. Because remember what they wanted to do right off the bat? Ten out of the twelve offered up the majority report. They're stronger than we are. Those ten stirring up the entire company to select a leader to return them back to Egypt. Joshua and Caleb saying, just a minute, only leading to them wanting to kill them with stones. And then those years, and then Joshua goes over the period of the judges. All that happened to David and to Solomon. Solomon says this in 1 Kings 8, verse 35. I'm just taking this little bit out because I want you to remember this. What they wanted to do is what? Return to Egypt. But Solomon offers something else to do. He says, when heaven is shut up and there's no rain, because they have sinned against you. We're very dry in Oklahoma right now. We're very dry in Oklahoma right now. And Solomon centuries ago said, when heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you. It's a big word, two letters. He says if, right? If they pray toward this place and confess your name and what? Turn from their sin. Not return to Egypt, but turn from their sin. When you afflict them, verse 36, he's saying, if they'll do this, I'm dedicating the temple today with my arms raised towards you in your name. If this is done, then hear thou in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants and of thy people Israel, that you teach them the good way wherein they should walk and give rain upon the land which thou have given to the people as an inheritance. See, Solomon said if. Solomon didn't do that. Solomon turned away from God. And we see what happened in the division of the kingdom with Rehoboam and Jeroboam, the Assyrians wiping the ten northern tribes, the house of Israel. And then, of course, it was Babylon that came upon the house of Judah and ultimately dismantling the incredible elements of this temple and taking it with them. But see, a remnant got to return, right? A remnant got to return. Because see, we're still taking what we closed with Revelation 21.3 of this, He will dwell. 
And I'm going to say what is going to be the meaning of life to me is that for us to be His people, to dwell with Him, and for Him to be our God. After this remnant returns, something I want to look at in Zechariah, and that's Zechariah 1. We've got to return back to Egypt. Solomon offered some incredible advice in that petitioning prayer. He said, if they will, eternal, forgive. But he turned somewhere else. And how much turning was done by the house of Israel and the house of Judah through the centuries? The turning, the turning away from God which led to them being captive and Israel never returning and a remnant coming back to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple after all of those incredible furnishings that even David began to acquire the elements of for Solomon to adorn the temple and make it in just a certain way to have that all carted off, carted off to Babylon. But notice what Zechariah says. Hundreds of years later, Zechariah 1, verse 1. This is in the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, came the word of the Lord unto Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, the prophet, saying, I think this is a little bit of understatement <laughs> on his part. Remember, he's the one that looked at them with the home-sewn fig apron, fig leaf apron, but made in coats skins and clothing them, he says in Zechariah, the Lord hath been sore displeased with your fathers, which makes you think, for how long? For a very long time. But the next statement is something that runs throughout Scripture. It's the incredible example in the words which further strengthen what Curtis talked about last week, the father of compassion. After we realize that the Lord has been displeased with the fathers, he says, Therefore say unto them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Turn you unto me. Turn unto me, and I'll turn unto you. Turn unto me, and I'll turn unto you. It's beautiful. Beautiful verse. I don't know if there was some sort of turning in Adam when they turned to him in that condition with those home-sewn fig leaf aprons to turn to him and ultimately at least be clothed with something that he provided, the incredible provision. He's the single source of provision. And he says, turn to me, and I'll turn to you. Now, going to Malachi, 
at the closing years of the written scriptural account of the Torah, Prophets, and the Psalms, we have Malachi. Malachi 3. Now see, when we look at that, if we put it on kind of like the timeline <clears throat> from when he said these things about creation and it, and it happened, but then he, with full intent, formed Adam of the dust, formed the nostrils, breathed into the nostrils, and then you come all the way down here to the time of Malachi's writing. The expanse of the scriptural revelation of the Torah law and the prophets, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Because this is just entering into that 400 plus years between the close of that to the arrival of John the Baptist that Malachi talks about. This approximate span of intertestamental time that we have. But during that whole expanse, all of that revelation, it comes down to this in Malachi 3 verse 6, for what he says, for I am the Lord and I change not. He doesn't change. And he doesn't want us to return to Egypt. And he doesn't want us to turn to anything or anyone but him. Okay? But notice what he says here after he says, For I am the Lord and I change not. Even from the days of your fathers you are gone away from my ordinances. and have not kept them. He says, return unto me, and I will return unto you, says the Lord of hosts. Again, there it is. And when you think about that, just that what Curtis brought out last week, and then adding to what Steve said also, is that he's the father of compassion. And that his ways are not our ways, but he's made known his ways to us. And he's revealed his mighty acts, incredible acts of deliverance, restoration, rebuilding through his word. And he says, return to me and I will return to you. It's incredible. It is incredible. I had a few more things to talk about, but I'm going to save those for, for what Ron will probably call part 52, 53. It's just amazing. I was, I was, it's just all one message to me. And now from coming out of the feast into this, this incredible blessing that David brought forth of saying that he, he made known he made known his ways unto Moses, and we have this. And the incredible compassion, the, the unsearchable riches of his loving kindness that he continually shows to us in Scripture. And there's always, regardless, as we stand there in homemade aprons of fig leaves, after hiding from being ashamed, there he stands. And he wants to clothe us. 
He wants to clothe us. We can take off the, the futility of somehow trying to clothe ourselves by praying deeper, surrendering all, and seeing him that he is the Father of compassion. I want to go to Acts 3 and finish with a couple of things. Because we have the Messiah, we have our Savior, we have Jesus, blessed Lord and Savior, the one whom Moses declared unto him, you're going to hear from Deuteronomy 18. And here in Acts 3, he is the one that Peter expounds. Because Peter takes that what Moses said in Deuteronomy 18, speaking about our Savior, and he adds that Pentecost element, that Holy Spirit understanding and amplifying what he says in Acts 3, verse 22. He says, For Moses truly said, Unto the fathers a prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brothers like unto me. Him shall you hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. It says, Yea, and all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after, as many as have spoken, have likewise foretold of these days. You are the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, And in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed unto you first, God, having raised up his son, Jesus, sent him to bless you, okay? Sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. We turn to him, and he turns to us. The fact that he clothed them the way he did, after seeing and reading, praying about, meditating about, thinking about him and his desire to dwell with us, his desire for us to be his people, his desire to be our father. And in seeing that hand continually out throughout the centuries, turn to me and I'll turn to you. And then what we have in our Savior, what we have in our Messiah. He's, he redeems us. He restores the family. He restores the family. We come unto Him, and through Him we're reconciled, right? We come to Him, and through Him we're home. We're home because we understand what Moses did, that He's been our habitation. He is the habitation, right? The removal of all and any resemblance of sin is the perfect embodiment of the perfect Torah of Psalm 19. Through His sanctified and set-apart spirit, we are set apart in Him to meet with Him in His set-apart appointed times. Brethren, He is the pathway. He is the turning. He is the returning to our Creator. He's the pathway to being clothed. 
But see, it's being clothed by Him. But this time, let's look at these clothes in Isaiah 61. We all admit that a coat of skins would feel much better than an apron of fig leaves. But I think about these clothes. The incredible clothes of Isaiah 61, verse 10. He says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me. Are you happy that he's clothed you? Do you rejoice? Are you joyful that he has clothed you with the garments of salvation? He's covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. And in verse 11, thinking about Revelation 21, that he will dwell. He will dwell. Isaiah 61, 11 says, For as the earth brings forth her bud, and as the garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth. So the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. But see, it's still there. We have to turn to Him. We have to turn to Him. And we're promised that if we do, He will turn to us.